Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And that brings us to step three, uh, understanding the origin, motive, and history uh, of my sin. And again, any emotional experience is going to have an origin. It's going to have a starting point. This is when I began to feel this way. It's going to have a motive. It's going to have some fuel that keeps it going. And it's going to have a history. It's going to have some kind of developmental process where over the course of time, uh, this experience has taken uh, different shapes. Now, my, my observation in, in counseling this kind of scenario is when it comes to asking the question, why? Which is really what we're after here. Uh, oftentimes, when depression and anxiety has become strong in our lives, we, we tend to only ask the question, why? Out of this moment of desperation. I mean, it's, it's kind of why, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. It, it has that sense of, ah, t-. and we... Again, we just want relief. Uh, And we want to begin to ask it here uh, in a different frame of mind. One where we are being strategic in the way uh, that we are grappling with it. Uh, David Noggle, he says, We can all too easily confuse what we desire with what is desirable. Satisfy the superficial and starve the essential traits of our nature. Love absolutely what should be loved relatively. And love relatively what should be loved absolutely. We can be on a fool's errand for fool's gold. And oftentimes in our struggle with depression and anxiety, that's what's going on. There's certain things that we think have promised us hope and and a future. and, And as we pursue them, they keep giving us a diminishing return on what they've promised. And that's what's driving what's going on. But before we look at that kind of motive, uh, let's consider how our personal and family history can impact our depression and anxiety. And I think uh, as we think about family influences, it can do that in two ways. Uh, Genes that we inherit, uh, we'll talk about those in just a moment, uh, and the values uh, values and lifestyle in which we live. I like what Yarhouse and Friends says here. Uh, He's talking about as a a medical physician. As physicians are prone to say, it can be as important to know what type of person has a disease as what disease a person has. Uh, And sometimes in the midst of a conversation like this, we just lose sight of that. Um, You know, we have, we will never in our life talk to a subject. We will only talk to a person. I will never in my life talk to depression. I will only talk to a person with the experience of depression. And if that person is a type A overachiever, their experience of depression, even if it has a similar cause, is going to be different from somebody who I guess is a type B more timid person. Uh, And so it's as important to know 
what kind of person is facing a particular struggle as it is to know what struggle a person is facing. Now, in terms of family influence, one way uh, that families influence us is at the level of value and expectations. Uh, this is one of the most basic ways that family influences us. Uh, so if you have kids, uh, I would invite you to think about the question this way. Uh, what do your children correct other people's children for doing? Uh, our oldest was over at a friend's house. And uh, the friend had a, had a sloppy room and... Uh, actually, it was a friend of a, his younger brother, and they were over there together. So it's a 10-year-old over at the 7-year-old's house. Sloppy room, and the mom had said something about cleaning something up, and the, the other kid wasn't too keen on the idea. And my oldest looked at him, and he said, um, if, you don't cl- if you don't get your act together and quit being a slob, you're never going to get a wife. <laughs> and I'm like, this is an awesome conversation for a 10-year-old to be having to a 7-year-old. And you see two values in that. One is, we tend to be a household uh, that values neatness and orderliness. Now, again, I think my son needs to look at his own room before he starts trying to get on to somebody else. Uh, But you also see a value that we spend a lot of time talking about how our choices reveal the the way we care for other people. And and so those kinds of values were implicit in, in what was being said. And so... Uh, What are some things that that impact values and expectations? Uh, Comparative thinking. Um, You know, did you, growing up, feel ranked? You know, did you have to be better than somebody else in uh, a class or in a sports league or in an area of music or something like that? Uh, And that can be particularly difficult and harmful if it was over an area that you didn't have any control over where you begin to feel like, I am always not living up to expectations, but I don't have the ability to do that. Um, The level of busyness and passivity within a home. You know, home is a place uh, where for our kids, uh, we establish homeostasis. Now, any of you remember the word homeostasis from biology? Uh, Okay, we got a few people here. Uh, I'll use it in a sentence, and I bet you can begin to figure out what it means. The homeostasis of a penguin is a cold aquatic environment with fish. Okay, Homeostasis, we begin to pull from that. It means the environment in which we feel most comfortable and we think we are going to thrive. And so, as families, we create a sense of homeostasis. What is the conflict level that is normal? Do we not address everything? Is it okay to yell and scream? What is the level of busyness? Uh, Those are the kinds of things that create a sense of homeostasis that will impact where our children naturally feel comfortable. Entitlement. Uh, The way that a family relates to possessions. You know, think about it. The things that we have as a family, do we tend to view those as something that we earned? or something that are an evidence of God's grace in our life and His goodness to us. The things that we don't have, are we able to be content, or do we sour and think we deserve those and they're being uh, withheld from us? The things that other people have, can we view those things and be 
pleased and happy for them? Or do we speak of them with jealousy as if we have to compete and they think they're better than we are because we don't have them? Those are some of the things that a family will impact that has a large influence on our experience of depression and anxiety. Then there's matters of lifestyle and coping skills. Um, Lifestyles and coping skills are just the behavioral expression of our values. Whatever values we hold will begin to have a behavioral residue that will become our lifestyle. Uh, And maybe one of those things is worry and grumbling. Just the mental rehearsal of what we deem to be most important. Or self-pity. This statement here, I don't necessarily like it because whenever I go into self-pity it makes me uh, offended, but I think it's true. Uh, Self-pity is easily the most destructive of the non-pharmaceutical narcotics. It is addictive, gives momentary pleasure, and separates the victim uh, from reality. Uh, Leslie Vernick on that same theme. People who believe they should be better than they believe they should be better uh, than they are can't be happy because they are morbidly preoccupied with themselves. We will always de- be disappointed with life or others when we ask it to do something it was not designed to do. When we put our hope in or expect something or someone uh, other than God to fill us or make us happy, we, He will surely frustrate us. Uh, but he, God doesn't do this to punish us. He does it to rescue us from our disordered attachments and delusions, to rescue us ultimately from ourselves. And then another lifestyle coping uh, thing that we can get from our family is just how much do we avoid unpleasant emotions? You know, there's so many family, people that I hear, they're like, my family just didn't deal with anything, so I don't know how to deal with it now. Again, be encouraged. This entire seminar is an exercise in non-avoidance. Uh, this is an exercise in walking through and grappling with things. Uh, also talk about trauma there. Uh, families can unfortunately also be a place of trauma. Uh, if you go through and look at that and go, that's what it sounds like to me, then probably you need to look at the suffering um, material that corresponds with this. But what about our biology? Um, you know, our, our physiology uh, can influence depression and anxiety in three ways. Uh, first, we can be predisposed uh, based upon our genetic makeup. I mean, there's some of us that we just kind of know. We see certain kids, they just seem uneasy, not at rest from a very early age. And that's kind of a, a characteristic trait. Uh, or we can habituate our bodies to respond to situations. That, the whole thing we were talking about neural pathways in just a moment. Um, or anxiety and depression can change our bodies uh, in a way that produces depression and anxiety. Uh, all the health effects we were talking about with free radicals and that kind of stuff. Here's what I want us to see for just a moment. It, you start talking about physiology of depression and anxiety, uh, and the instinct is just to go, see, there's a biological component, nothing I say or do matters, this is just who I am. Um, that, is, uh, that at this point is just bad science. Uh, I will spare you the nerd talk for just a moment. Uh, but if you want to look at epigenetics and neuroplasticity and neural pathways. And you're going, wait a second, is he speaking in tongues? I didn't know we were that kind of church. But it just stay with me. It, uh, when you look at that, really one of the biggest implications of those kinds of scientific research 
is that choices matter. The choices that we make impact which genes express themselves at a given period of time. That's the whole idea behind epigenetics. There are things that we do that impact the activation and deactivation of certain genes. Neuroplasticity means that whatever is going on in our brain, our neurology is much more adaptive uh, than the neurological theories of a decade or two decades ago would have led us to believe. And so our choices really do matter. And so now we come uh, to our motives for depression and anxiety. Um, And it may seem odd uh, for some of us to think about motives for depression and anxiety. But one of the things that I want us to, to see and to grapple with is that emotions don't just happen. Uh, and, and there's times when, I think for some of us, we think, ah, this is just what evangelical Christians, kind of the biblical counseling movement and that kind of thing, they want to say that emotions are our responsibility. They don't, just, uh, they don't happen to us. They're something that we do. Uh, one of the leading fields right now uh, in, in counseling is emotional intelligence. Uh, and, and this is the primary emphasis of the emotional intelligence movement. That we do our emotions. And they're not doing that for a Luke 6.45, kind of it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. The things that we say and do and feel reveal uh, the core center of our being, which is our heart. They're just saying, as we observe people, we do our emotions. Uh, we, uh, for various number of reasons, our emotions are an expression of the things that we value most and want to be true. Um, and so, uh, it's, uh, it is not just evangelical Christianity that would make this kind of point. Uh, there are many in the secular world who would say, yes, we agree with that for different reasons, not on the basis of the authority of Scripture, but based upon empirical research and various things, we're coming to the same conclusion. Uh, I have... Um, to try to help us grapple with this kind of motive, uh, divided the kinds of motives we could have into I want motives, I believe motives, and I trust motives. Uh, I want motives are those things that we actively pursue uh, that when they become too large, it's not that they're bad in and of themselves, but they can become so important that they begin to fuel our depression and anxiety. Uh, Control and autonomy. You know, sometimes our anxiety and depression is just our form of protest against not being sovereign. We want to be in control. uh, And and we're not. And we don't know how to be okay with it. And it just creates this sense of unrest or this sense of despair. And in this idea of not having absolute control or autonomy um, is so distasteful. we, We won't allow ourselves to be at rest. Or acceptance. You know, it's that difference between enjoying people, living in healthy community, and needing people. Uh, this kind of codependent emotional reaction. Pleasure. You know, one of the things that I, I think is worth us at least considering uh, in a day and age so built around entertainment is there's so much fun in our life that there's no room for peace. Have we crowded out peace with enjoyment? Or or maybe it's not the pursuit of, it's just urgency. Everything's so important that there's no room for peace. 
ease and comfort. Have I gotten to the point of thinking that ease and comfort are so important, just the basic responsibility of life feels like too much to ask. Uh, And I begin to feel bothered by it. Immediacy. Um, You know, we live in a day of chronological comfort. We don't want to wait for nothing. Uh, I mean, if our phone is taking a second and a half to give us our email, we're ready to spike it like a football. Uh, we TiVo everything so that we can see it when we want to. I mean, we, we don't wait well. And when we cannot technologically master parts of our life to make it respond as if the way that we've managed most of life to do it, the sense of unrest that we get because we just don't want to wait can leave us at this spot of depression and anxiety. Uh, social, uh, select justice on demand. Again, i got a lot of compassion for this one. Because there are some, there's some really important parts of our world that are broken and wrong and need to be addressed. Uh, but sometimes our lives become so focused that until this is made right, I can't experience peace. And our, our desire for this thing to be corrected, oftentimes very good things that need to be corrected, we, we don't allow our souls to experience rest because we feel like it betrays the cause that's important to us. And just as a, a voice, not just the words that he says, but the context in which he said them, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel um, in the 1950s, which would be the time right after World War II, which would have been the time right after Nazi Germany. Rabbi, rabbi meaning Jewish. Uh, he would say, needs are looked upon today. He's talking about the 50s. He's not talking about 2014. Uh, as if uh, they were holy. As if they contained the quintessence of eternity. Needs are our guides, and we toil and spare no effort to gratify them. Suppression of desire is considered a sacrilege that must inevitably avenge itself in the form of some mental disorder. We feel jailed in the confinement of personal needs. The more we indulge in satisfactions, the deeper it it is our feelings of oppression. We must be able to say no to ourselves in the name of a higher yes. And again, part of the thing that is destructive about taking those good things and making them needs that become the foundation for our soul's rest is that any time our hope goes in those things, they increasingly give us a diminishing return. And the amount of effort that it takes to satisfy them and the amount of satisfaction that they give, we're trading dimes for nickels again in a way that is going to leave us emotionally bankrupt. So those are some of the I want motives. Uh, I believe motives. Uh, Various forms, I think these are more self-protective. Perfectionism as moral Teflon. Uh, I will tell you, if you had to pick which one are you going to put my initials by, BCH, uh, you can put my initials by this one. Uh, This one's me. Um, I I just kind of live with, as long as I don't do anything wrong, I can't be held responsible for anything that might happen in the future. And so, 
doing good becomes my shield, becomes my protection from anybody being able to hold anything over my... And as soon as I do something that doesn't live up to my standard or is wrong, then I feel like the weight of everything that has gone wrong and might go wrong crushes down on me and this sense of angst and despair can become very strong. And so that's kind of the future-oriented version. I think the the past-oriented version of that is redemption through overcoming. Uh, That we think the goal of life is to make up for some failure or to compensate for some disadvantage. Uh, And Brian Boardman, he would say, our emotions tell us what we really, really believe. When I look at it, I begin to realize I really believe that perfectionism is the way to be morally Teflon. And what do I do with that? Do I wallow in shame and beat myself up and go, I'm a psychological heretic because I believe things that aren't true? No, there's more grace than that. I listen to myself without shame. I go, okay, Brad, this is what you say you believe. I articulate it. Because half the time, the stuff that goes on in our head doesn't make nearly as much sense when it comes out of our mouth. I mean, amen? How many times we have an argument And in our head, we are totally winning. Every time winning. Never lost an argument in my head. It comes out of my mouth and it's just not the same. Yeah. And so if I... What if I did that with my depression and anxiety? What if instead of just kind of beating myself up and self-latherating for it, if I said, okay, let let me listen without shame. Let me put it into words so that it doesn't seem nearly as convincing as it was when it was just echoing in my head. And then I can begin to challenge it and counteract it in whatever way God would call me to do it. Because He's on my team. He's for me in this. Um, And then I trust. Uh, In terms of I trust, uh, this is just to whom am I going to run when I feel depressed or anxious? which is really the most important part about any emotion. Where does it take me? Um, Our culture would say, it should take you to yourself. Uh, The answers are within. I think there are Christianized versions of this uh, that uh, that really when we do that, uh, I don't think we mean to do this, but what happens is we wind up using God as a steroid instead of a refuge. It's as if the answer is for me and God is the steroid I need to kind of get fired up, you know, just emotionally bow up on this thing. Uh, and me on God uh, is going to take care of this. God is not a steroid. He's a refuge. Um, run to others. Uh, that idea that we're living on community instead of living in community. Uh, sometimes in these situations, I hear people speak almost as if community is the fourth member of the Trinity. Uh, community is what's going to fix everything. Um, but uh, the call is to live in community, not on community. Or possessions. You know, we just think we're going to get enough stuff that's going to make our fears go away. Um, you can usually tell a culture's idols uh, by the biggest, nicest buildings in town. And banks tend to be, in most towns, the biggest, nicest buildings. Uh, and, and And that's because so much of our identity, so much of our security tends to be rooted in those things. Now, I give you a journaling tool that if you say, I just want to begin to pay attention, 
uh, to my anxiety a bit more or my depression when it comes on. Uh, this is meant to be something that you could use that would help you divide that experience into the kind of steps that we're walking through. 